You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Amen. Thank you for that song. That's a blessing. I mean, every one of those songs... um, those, those hymns, those great hymns of the faith, you might call them, uh, they do something for you in your dark times, don't they? And I'm grateful um, that even, I mean, if they're true in the good times, they're true in the bad times, too. And, and I, I mean, many of those songs have gotten me through some tough times in my own life, and I'm grateful. And I'm thankful for the way the connection is made with the message this morning as well about grace, because we will be touching on that today. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, if you would, as you turn in your Bibles to Genesis 6, we're going to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Genesis chapter 6. And then if you, it shouldn't take you too long to find Genesis 6, but you might then also put a marker over in Isaiah chapter 53. And when we get to Isaiah 53, that's how you know that, that we're winding down. So... Don't get too excited when I say turn to, Gen- to Isaiah 53, but um, that'll, we'll, we'll use that at the end. So Genesis 6 and Isaiah 53. This text is one of the most talked about in the Bible. And you might say controversial or you might say debated. I don't know how you want to say it, but the discussion from Genesis 6 always seems to center on the question, who were the sons of God? And we're going to look at that in a moment as we read it. And while it makes for interesting conversation, I believe it can cause Bible readers to miss the spiritual lessons that God intends to teach us in a text like this. Sometimes we get involved in the debate and we kind of wrap ourselves into the controversy or into the discussion, and it serves as somewhat of a red herring, if you know what I mean by that, and then it kind of takes us off topic instead of seeing what we really need to focus on. And what the point of this message, if I was to say the subject of Genesis 6, 1 through 8, if I was to sum it up, I would say it's how God responds to the wickedness of mankind. It doesn't have very much to do with the sons of God, although we'll touch on it a little bit. The truth is we're all sinners, folks. And I know that's not a popular thing to say uh, in, in today's modern church culture, but we are all sinners. It's why we're saying only a sinner saved by grace this morning, because that's what we're are, we are. And we need to understand God's view of our sin so that we can ensure that we remain in good standing with God. That's the most important thing in our lives. So I've entitled this message, Giants, Grief, or Grace. Let's read Genesis 6, 1 through 8. It says, And it came to pass... When men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be in a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of man Sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you say, well, why would you connect verse 8 with the rest of them? Well, it's part of the story. Verse 9 begins anew, as we talked about last week, a new Toledoth, which is the generations. The generations of Noah, verse 9, that's where we're getting to. But we're still coming to the end of the generations of Adam, the generation of Adam. And the point of all of this is that in the midst of upheaval and chaos and wickedness, God still extends grace. And we should be thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I'm grateful for the day you've given us. Thank you for the beautiful day to be in your house. I pray that you would allow us, Lord, to see the truth and have open minds and hearts. God, I pray that you would help my lips to only speak that which your Holy Spirit would have me. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to response. God, work in our lives this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If this year has revealed anything to us, it's that... The tough times either bring out the best or the worst in mankind. It reminds me of the opening of Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. See, difficulty does that. And for some, it brings out their best. They respond with clarity and with action. And I'm grateful for those in this time that that it's brought the best out. In them. I, I'm thankful for those that are working hard in the medical field and in the hospitals and working uh, in the middle of a pandemic and, and putting in the extra time and the extra hours. And I, I know we may think that some of, the, some of these things might be overblown, but there are people making sacrifices to help those that are sick. And I'm grateful for that. I'm thankful for the bravery of our law enforcement officers in times of tension. I mean, you, the, the target on the back of a police officer just sitting in his cruiser now. I mean, you, can't, you have to look over your shoulder at all times. And I'm thankful for those men and those women that put their lives on the line to keep the peace. I'm, I'm thankful that, that it brings out in the common citizens. There are times where citizens are coming together and helping those in need during job loss and financial crisis. In some ways, it has brought some of us together and it's brought the best out. Difficulty brings out the best in some people. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful that at an Eastside Baptist Church during a pandemic and during all of these things going on, that, that we have got a group, a core of people that decided... I mean, you know, I'm going to live based on faith and not based on fear. My relationship with God and my attendance and commitment to my local church matters more to me than anything else. And can I say, Eastside Baptist Church, I'm thankful for those that have chosen to, to use this time as a season to grow and not a season to become a detached. But for others, though, it's brought out the worst. The ridiculous politicizing of the coronavirus by politicians and media. No one's doubting that there is a virus, but the way that it's been politicized. I mean, even this week, if you get on, don't get on Twitter. Um, if you don't ever get on Twitter, my I say these days, but you get on Twitter these days, and you've got people uh, making fun of and laughing at our president for getting COVID. It brings out the worst. The eruptions of violence over over injustice, real or perceived, the rise of murder rates and crime overall in our cities. I mean, 
the numbers are skyrocketing because the police are, are quitting in force, large masses, and so crime is going up. It's bringing out the worst in people, the burning of local businesses, the ambushing of law enforcement, uh, the, the wars being waged in the streets of our cities over opposing political views. The funding of protests by the rich simply to incite chaos and disorder. I know this isn't politically popular, but, but I'm just telling you, this is what's happening in our country. I mean, the attacks on the freedoms of Americans to make simple choices. The liberty of churches being taken away by the government in the name of safety. Now, I personally know preachers, pastors in other states, and they can't even meet in their own building right now. They don't have a building either to meet in or they can't meet in their building. And the, fire fi- the fires, the wildfires are making the air outside so unbreathable they can't be outside, but they're not allowed to be inside because of, of the, the restrictions. And listen, and, and I'm not saying that, that there's no risk. There is risk. But anytime you have liberty, there's always a risk. I mean, our liberty is built on people willing to set aside their own safety for us to have some liberty. We've seen some at their best, but it seems we've seen far more at their worst. Not many Americans are optimistic about our current condition or our future prospects. And as much as I'd like to make this an encouraging introduction, it's too late for that. I'm sorry. Sometimes the Bible is such a mirror to our present times that it's hard to make light of any of it because I look at Genesis 6 1 through 8 and I say, see the United States of America in 2020 it was happening then and it's happening today it came to pass verse 1 when men began to multiply in the face of the earth there's an exploding population and it seemed to magnify the wickedness and you might say well what happened to the line of Seth we've been talking about the line of Seth and how God has a remnant, and we're thankful for those that are Godward in the midst of wickedness. Well, we're never told that all of Seth's line followed God. Genesis 5 is about the line of Seth. It's about the godly in the face of the wicked. And, but as I mentioned even last week, it's likely that many of his descendants did not have godly lives or didn't follow in their, in their ancestors' footsteps. It's, and it's proven by the time we get to Genesis 6, because if God has a remnant, it's very small. And by the time God sends the flood in this chapter, only Noah and his sons are left standing. They're the only ones left standing in a Godward life. The remnant today continues to get smaller and smaller. The fastest growing religion in the world, or at least in our country, is no religion at all. And here's where we get into the debate, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. So I'm just going to give you a a rundown of some overviews of what people believe that this means. It's controversial because it seems as if the sons sons of God and the daughters of men come together and they bear these mighty children, men of renown, it says, mighty men of old in verse 4. Some believe that this points back to the previous two chapters. And I understand that. They say, well, the sons of God, in verse 2, it's talking about the line of Seth. We've been talking about the line of Cain in chapter 4. We talked about the line of Seth in chapter 5. So obviously the sons of God are the, the sons of, or the line of Seth, and the daughters of men were the line of Cain. And God is unhappy with them because those that were supposed to be godly have t- come together with those that were ungodly and, and, and they compromised in that regard. 
And it goes along with the context. I can understand why some people would believe that the sons of God here in verse 2 are referring to the line of Seth. I see that. But I also think in some ways it stretches the terms. The line of Seth has never been referred to as the sons of God to this point. Uh, God's purpose for Moses writing Genesis 5 was to show the Israelites that God always preserves a remnant. But to call them the sons of God when Noah is the only one left standing, that seems like a stretch. It seems maybe like that, that's a little bit of a taking things out of context. And I, so I understand why some don't believe that. The only one left standing is Noah. So who are the sons of God? If they're going to be called the sons of God, you would think they would be living as the sons of God. View two, some say that sons of God refers to nobles or kings that had submitted themselves to satanic forces or they were demon-possessed and they were striving for fame and fertility, so they were taking unto themselves many wives. And so through their lust of women in power, they were trying to achieve what some say, Alan Ross, a commentator, said they were trying to achieve immortality through immorality. But to many, that view seems kind of forced as well because it's not accepting what seems to follow natural interpretation. The third view, which many accept and others reject, but others interpret this to mean that fallen angels came to earth. And these fallen angels married and reproduced with human women. And that sounds outrageous. I understand but if you read the Bible, it's not out of, out of the character of the Old Testament especially to see plenty of angelic and demonic activity going on. I mean, Satan himself came to the Garden of Eden in the form of a serpent. In Genesis 19, angels were visiting Lot and Sodom, and those angels were obviously male to the point that the men of Sodom surrounded the house and wanted to take advantage of them. I mean, I know those aren't fun stories to look at, um, but there's plenty of angelic and demonic activity in the Bible. And I know that sounds spooky to some people, but it's the reality, okay? And, and we live in a society that walks by sight and not by faith, and they, they, don't, they don't want to believe anything in the supernatural, but God's a supernatural God. He's a divine God, and we don't understand everything about Him. So we should assume when the Bible talks about angels and demons, it's accurate. And so, I mean, I can understand why some people take this to mean angelic beings, because if you go to the book of Job, there's three times listed in the uh, sons of God. That phrase is used in the book of Job, and every time it's referring to angelic beings. Now, I mean, there are some issues when you consider in, in Job, the sons of God were angels in heaven. And if these are fallen angels, why are they still called sons of God? But the implication is that, that the sons of God, these angelic beings, these fallen angels, came to earth and, and they, they took these human wives and they produced then a race of giants in verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which are old. They lived a long time and, they, and then men of renown, they were men, they were mighty, powerful men. It seems to be the result of this union. And you say, well, that's far-fetched. And I understand it. Uh, but it also, though, when you start to think about Genesis 3 and how God said that the Messiah would come through the seed of the woman, it's not so far-fetched to think that Satan might do his best to corrupt the seed of mankind. To do what he can, because if, if he can corrupt the seed of mankind through which Messiah is coming, then, you know, then he might try that. There are a lot of other reasons that people support the view. Plenty of others find it outlandish. And here's my conclusion. Okay, write this down. 
It don't matter. I'll say it more properly. It doesn't matter. See, the Bible, you know why it doesn't matter? Because the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us. And if God wanted us to have that detail, and he wanted us to know for sure, then he would have told us all about it, and we wouldn't be spending our time debating it. We've learned this week that debates are counterproductive anyway. So, the point is, we need to focus on what we know, and that God doesn't take wickedness lightly. See, without a doubt, that's the point of the text. Whether or not these were fallen angels or they were sons of God or they were demon-possessed kings, whatever you want to say, God's response to their action is what we need to focus on. And I want to give you some responses from God toward wickedness. Just three things that I think will be a help to us today. Three responses of God toward wickedness. And number one is God limits wickedness. God limits wickedness. Look at verse 3. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his day shall be in 120 years. That word strive means to plead. If you've ever pled with somebody to change their mind or do something different. See, God would not allow, this is important for us to understand, God would not allow the human race to stay in a condition of wicked rebellion forever. That means that there is a point of no return in someone's rejection of God. See, one commentator said, God will not woo us forever. There is a point where he will say no more. And in this case, he gives a timeline of 120 years. And some people believe that he's saying that men won't live past 120 years old. uh, But we know that that actually sometimes still happens. I happen to believe that this 120 years is the timeline. And God says, in 120 years, I'm going to send my judgment. I'll send my flood. In 120 years, so he gives, gives man a timeline. He says, you have 120 years to get, to get right. Listen, I cannot stress this enough. This is all the more reason to respond to God today instead of waiting for a different time, folks. And I'm not trying to scare anybody into submission. And I'm not trying to manufacture emotion. But we're not promised tomorrow. You cannot afford to put God off. He will put an end to wickedness. And you say, well, he gave them 120 years, but he's not obligated to give any time to us once we've rejected him. And if you've rejected Jesus Christ and you've not received him as your savior, there's no better day than today. Today is the day of salvation because God limits wickedness. He will not let it endure forever. And you might say, well, it's not as bad today as it was then. But Jesus Christ himself himself said that the world will get that bad again. He said in Matthew 24, listen, but as the days of Noah were, so also, so shall also the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage. Does that sound familiar to you? See, in other words, the conditions of the world before the return of Christ will be like the conditions of the world were before the flood. So he's talking about the future, but it sure sounds a lot to me like the present. We've got these things evident. We've got exploding populations. When men began to multiply, Genesis 6-1, the population wasn't the only thing multiplying, though. See, as godless parents had children, they were reproducing more offspring that had no context or respect for God. We've got 7.7 billion in our world. And as I said on, on Wednesday night, um, the latest statistics 
would imply that less than 2% of our 7.7 billion have received Jesus Christ as their Savior and been born again. Less than 2%. And that's an eye-opening, an eye-popping statistic. And it also makes you think that as the world population explodes, so does the mindset of this anti-God, no knowledge of God, no relationship with God. They're producing offspring that have no context for God. And yes, it increases our desire for mission missions. It should. But it also multiplies the number of people every day that are being born into a world with no thought of God at all. And as we get further and further away from God, every generation waxes worse and worse. So there's exploding population and there's immorality. These Whoever the sons of God were, they saw the daughters of men. They took them wise of all which they chose. It says. In other words, it, it's saying that they took every, however many wives they wanted, they took wives. Whoever they wanted, they took that wife. They cast off the sacred covenant of marriage and overstepped the boundaries God had placed before them. Listen, there's very little considered out of bounds in our culture. Very little is considered wrong, especially in the area of marriage. As a matter of fact, in our culture, it says you can do whatever you want and no one can tell you otherwise. You are the one that gets to choose what's right and what's wrong. Yet in Genesis chapter 2, God said one man, one woman for life. And that's not me standing up here with a condescending attitude of pride or, or looking down on anybody else. I'm simply saying God gave us the definition for marriage. And any lifestyle that doesn't fit his design for marriage in scripture is sin. Boy, I'm, just, I'm not making many friends today, I'm just, but I am telling you what the Bible says. See, in our culture, just like Genesis 6, just about every sexual and marital concept, it's not just accepted, they're celebrated. You've got demonic activity here. I mean, if these are the sun, if these are uh, the fallen angels, there's certainly demonic activity. And from my own experiences and dealings with people, the spiritual warfare has never been higher than it has been in 2020 in the lives of the people that I know. Satan has capitalized on fear and uncertainty and anxiety has taken over people's lives. And what some people might say, just call a, you know, a mental disorder or they might just take a pill for it. It's a spiritual problem. Spiritual attacks are on the rise. 2020 has brought that out. So you've got exploding populations and you've got immorality and you've got demonic activity. And he said you've got constant evil in the heart of man. That's a common denominator back then, and it's happening today. Genesis 6, verse 5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. No wonder God responded so strongly. Every imagination in every heart, evil continually. And, you know, listen, I'm thankful for the remnant that still seeks righteousness in our country. Because there's a lot of evil. But I want you to pay attention to this. We're really only one generation away from continual evil. Listen, right now, parents and, and Christians, right now, the world that we live in is no different than Genesis 6. And it's wickedness everywhere. And in large part, the thoughts of every man's heart are only evil continually. 
And listen, all the more reason for us to do our job in transferring our faith to the next generation. All it takes for wickedness to be continual evil only is for us as our generation to not do our job in transferring it to these young people. We've got to make sure that their faith is strong and that their faith is intact and they're standing on their own two feet when it comes to their walk with God. All it takes for wrong to win is for the godly to do nothing. And it could be that the only reason God hasn't judged our country for its continual evil is because there are still plenty with hearts that long to see his righteousness, but we're not growing in that respect. There's widespread corruption and violence. Look down in verse 11 of Genesis 6. The earth was also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. There's corruption in the highest levels of business and government. Listen, there's violence everywhere you look. By the way, Hollywood, they stand on a pedestal of self-righteousness and tolerance, but they contribute as much to the violence in our culture as anybody else does. You turn on a movie, any, any movie, any television series, you turn on video games. By the way, parents, be careful of the video games you're allowing your children to play. The violence would shock you in the video games. This violence is pervasive and it's everywhere and it's almost just accepted it's not real. But it's a mark of wickedness. If we're reading Genesis 6, it's a mark of wickedness to accept that level of violence. This is what God's responding to. And rather than someone, uh, or rather than assuming that God is unfair for his response and judgment, be thankful he puts a shelf life on wickedness. Be thankful that he doesn't say, oh yeah, he's not up in heaven thinking, oh yeah, they're, they're doing some pretty bad stuff down there. You know, I'll just let them leave it to themselves. No, he's interested enough in us to put a shelf life on the wickedness. And here's, it, it happened in the Garden of Eden. I mean, Adam and Eve, they, oh, they sinned by ignoring God's boundaries. And God said, don't eat of that tree. You can eat of any other tree, just not that one. And they ignored it. And listen, if God had simply, and we read this or talked about this in this series, if God had simply just let them live in the Garden of Eden, they might have gone and taken of the tree of life. And they would have lived forever in their sin. God, God cast them out from the garden as an act of mercy. He didn't want them to live in their sin forever. He was, he was showing mercy by doing that. See, listen, in other words, if we're left to ourselves, there's no end to the wickedness. If God doesn't intervene, there is no end to the wickedness. Men will take wickedness as far as it goes, and it always ends in destruction and misery. Galatians 5 refers to, the, to sin as the works of the flesh, and then he, he contrasts it with the, the fruit of the Spirit. And basically what he's saying is the works of the flesh are always going to be works. There's never an end to the works. It will always, wickedness will always perpetuate. Wickedness is like a giant snowball that starts at the top of a mountain and starts to roll and build on itself and build on itself, but the mountain has no bottom. See, if men were left in charge and men were to, to solve the problems of wickedness, there's no way they can. Only God can solve the problem of wickedness. That's why we're not looking to a new president to change our country. Because a man can't fix our country. It's a spiritual problem and only God can fix it. And there are candidates and platforms that are more, they more closely align with God's words and that's how I'm voting. But that doesn't mean we think one or the other are actually going to answer our country's problems. Yeah. Only God can fix the people of the United States of America. That's right. 
And if men are in charge, there's no end to the perversion. Genesis 6 should tell us that. If men are left to themselves, it's only perversion and evil and violence. And God places the shelf life on sin. And we might view it as unkind. But without it, that ever-growing snowball would have no hope. We'd have no hope of escaping it. God limits wickedness because men refuse to. It's an act of mercy, just like removing Adam and Eve from the garden. So God's response to wickedness is that he limits wickedness. And the second response is that God judges sin. Look at verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the hearts, sorry, great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw the wickedness and he saw the evil and he saw it on a heart level. And I want you to listen to this. For Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the what? The heart. See, God certainly deals with the outward acts of wickedness. He does, but God also sees hearts. And he judges not only our actions, but also our secret sins, our secret intentions, our secret motives. Sin on a heart level, folks. Sin on a heart level is just as much sin to God. And you might think you'll escape God's notice if you keep it hidden, but he sees it. When Christ gave the Sermon on the Mount, what did he say? He declared that hatred in somebody's heart is the same as murder. And he said that lust in somebody's heart is the same as adultery. And you say, well, that's pretty harsh. But God's not just interested in your actions. He's watching your heart. Sin on a heart level is judgeable by God. And we live in a culture that says, don't judge me. Don't be judgy. You can't judge me. Thou shalt not judge. As if that's a Bible verse. Judge not, you hear that a lot. Truth is, though, God has a right to judge. And as the rightful judge, he sees our hearts. The heart is is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The next verse says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. See, God deals with man on a heart level. And you've come in here today, and and it may look good on the outside, but he sees your heart this morning. He knows it. Verse 6 says, It repented the Lord that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him at his heart. It repented the Lord. This is God's response to wickedness. Now, the Strong's Concordance defines repented like this. Okay, And I know this is a little bit strange. Here's how it defines it. It's a sigh. It's kind of, you've been there. When something you just, you don't know what else to do about it, and you just. That's what the word repent means. And I know that's, that seems like a silly definition, um, but that's what it means. And that it helps us to understand what God was feeling, what God is thinking. It means to sigh or breathe strongly. For the Bible to say God repented, it's not saying that God made a mistake and he had to fix it. That's not it. He knew this was going to happen. He's omniscient. He sees the future. The word repented was Moses' way of describing God in a way that we could understand it. See, listen, God is so high above us that we sometimes have to use human terms to wrap our minds around him. 
I mean, verse 6 is the example of that. It says it repented the Lord. Well, that's something that men do when they have sorrow over something. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Well, but the Bible, we know, the Bible says God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So does he have a literal heart? No, this is Moses' way of helping us understand God in terms that we can understand. It's not saying God made a mistake and he's repenting. It's, it's not saying that he was trying to fix a mistake he made. Not at all. It's an anthropomorphism, which is explaining God's actions in human terms in order to help us understand it. So he uses the terms repented and he uses the, terms, the term grieved. God repented in that he had sorrow as he saw the condition of mankind. He was grieved at the wickedness of man. God knew it would turn out this way. But listen, I want you to, get, I want you to focus in, tune in. God knew it would turn out this way, this way, but what is striking is that it still affected God as he watched it unfold. Think about that. God knew it would turn out this way. He knew that the wickedness of men would get to this point. But as he watched it unfold, it still affected him. See, listen, God is not some disinterested deity sitting on a throne in heaven with his back to to the earth and his back to mankind. He sees it when we rebel against him in wickedness, but he also sees the broken and contrite hearts. And if nothing else, these verses should convince you that God is interested in your life. He's watching your life. He understands and he sees it. God notices it when you're in sin. He notices it when you're not. God doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that he overlooks our sin, but he does notice it. And the fact that it gives him, or that it grieves him and and he repents of it means that he longs for us to change. He notices where we are. He sees where we are. And he's not willing to let us stay in that condition. So these 120 years to get right is an act of mercy. God sees their hearts and he doesn't just say, aren't you glad you're not God sometimes? I mean, if I was God, I mean, I'd be like, boom, first, first try. You're going to disobey? There you go. Well, here's God in every thought of every man in every heart, except for Noah, evil continually. And he doesn't say, boom, lightning. He says, 120 years. And right now, there's somebody in this room, and you've come in with a heart full of sin and wickedness of your own. And God, this 120 years is this service right here. It's God's way of telling you, it's time to get right. I'm not, he doesn't want to leave you to your own your vices. He doesn't want to leave you in your own wickedness. He does have a shelf life on sin. He limits wickedness, and he judges sin. But here's the great part about this whole story. He says, I'm going to destroy it all. I'm going to judge sin. But look at verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Which means, listen, even though God, God uh, limits wickedness, and even though God judges sin, God extends grace. Amen. He's a limit, he limits our wickedness, and he judges our sin, but he also always extends grace. And for those who are willing to receive it, they find it. At the same time that God was exercising judgment, he was extending grace. Grace means favor. And this is the first mention of grace in the Bible. And it's important because we see part of the definition. Listen, part of the definition of grace is found in this verse. It says, Noah found grace. 
in the eyes of the Lord. You know what? It doesn't say that Noah earned grace in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say that Noah went and bought grace in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say that Noah worked for grace in the eyes of the Lord. No, it simply says he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He found it. He didn't earn it. He didn't have some special connection with God that nobody else had that gave him an advantage. No, listen, Noah had the capacity for wickedness just like his neighbors. But instead, he made the humble choice to remain Godward when no one else would. Noah wasn't better than everybody else. He didn't earn anything. But we have to believe that by refusing to fall in with the wickedness of the day, the grace of God was extended to him and would have been to anybody else who would have sought it. He found grace. And you know, this list should be much longer. Because if some man named Jason had come in the face of wickedness and sought God's grace and refused to fall in with the wickedness of the day, guess what he would have found? Grace. And if Aaron, my wife Aaron, if she would have come, her name could have been listed here if she had lived in. If Aaron had come and refused to fall in with wickedness and instead sought God, she would have found grace. And Juan would have found grace too. And Stephen would have found grace. Brother Mike would have found grace. And Charles would have found grace. And Gabe would have found grace. And Gabe has found grace. And I'm thankful for it. We have found grace because we refuse to fall in line with the wicked culture. And we instead turn to God and in humility said, No, I want you instead of that. We've found grace and the list should be longer. And here's the contrast. Those who embrace wickedness will produce the grief of God. But those who refuse it will find His grace. It grieved God to his heart. But those who embrace wickedness will produce grief in God. Those who refuse it will find his grace. And we live in a wicked culture and it's overstepped every possible boundary that God has laid forth in his word. Nothing is off limits now. The wickedness is great and it seems like every thought in every heart is evil continually. And listen, giants have been created. Giants of grief have captured the hearts of many. And they are, they are living in submission to these giants of their own making. Among the lost, among God's people, we're walking around with giants on our shoulders, giants of sin, giants of wickedness, and it's causing grief in God. One thing every one of us has in common is a high capacity for sin. Listen, if you came to the service today looking for a self-esteem boost, you're not going to find it. I'm sorry. We all have a high capacity for sin. Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin. No, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one's better than another. And if I can say it this way, we all have giants of our own making. Yours may not be as visible as somebody else's. Maybe you've come and you come from a Christian background or a Christian home and you've got it pretty much together in your life and you look the part and everything looks good on the outside. But remember from this very passage here, God sees the heart of mankind. And you may look good on the outside, but he's looking on the inside and he sees the giant of sin. And there may be some in here and you're not hiding it from anybody and in your life you've got giants of your own making and these giants of sin they, they control you and you're in submission to them and you can't hide it from anybody. But listen, we're all in the same boat and that we all have high capacity for sin. It's just that some of us are better at hiding it than others. Just like the Pharisees. And just like Genesis 6, if we're left to ourselves, we would produce giants of sin that we could not control. 
And maybe you have. And you're thankful that everyone else can't see it. But that giant of sin sitting on your shoulders is crushing you. You've got a giant of bitterness because of what someone has done to you in your past. And you can't find it in your heart to forgive them. And that giant sits on your shoulders and crushes you daily. You've got a giant of anger. And in every moment, secret moments, I mean, you're just lashing out and angry at this person and that person in this situation. You've got a giant of hatred. You've got a giant, man, a giant of lust this morning. And, and there's a sexual giant, a sexual sin in your life. And it's controlling your every thought. And the giant is crushing you. And every time you submit to that giant of sin, it grieves God. As long as the giant runs your life, you will remain separated from God. Isaiah 59 says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And that dangerous position should remind you that God is a limit to wickedness, and he will judge it. Don't assume that you can live your life uh, as, uh, your way as long as you like. Today's the day to choose grace over grief. I love the message from the text here. No matter the giant, no matter the grief, God extends grace to the humble. See, Noah was no better than everybody else. He simply chose to live for God in the face of wickedness. And listen, God extends grace, and he's looking to extend grace. But where's the remnant? Folks, where's the remnant in our society, in our culture? Will there be enough of God, of a Godward remnant to hold off on God's judgment on our planet, in our time? Will he find it in our homes? Will he find it here at Eastside Baptist Church? Do we more closely reflect the wickedness of our culture or the holiness of God? I mean, what we're watching and what we're listening to and what we're spe- how we're speaking and in our appearance and in our hearts and in our spirits and in our attitudes. Listen, do we more closely reflect the wicked culture or do we reflect the remnant? We are in one position or the other. We either grieve God or we find grace. We either accept the giants and contribute to God's grief or we humble ourselves and get to enjoy his grace. And it all depends on our attitude and approach towards sin. Here's what James said. God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. He said, though cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts you double-minded. You want God's grace, get on your face. Confess your sin before God. And say, the wickedness of the culture, it may have bound me before, but I don't want that anymore, God. I'd rather have your grace than your grief. I'd rather have your love than your judgment. And there are some in this room, I believe, that aren't saved this morning. You've never, you don't have a relationship with God. You've never received him as your savior. You're either in a position of grief or grace. Remember what Isaiah 59, I just read it, says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And you say, well, my, my, my iniquities, my sin, my wickedness, it's caused this gap between God and I. But here's some great hope. For by grace are you saved. Through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace is extended to you today. 
You say, you don't know the gap of sin. You don't know the giant of sin on my shoulders. You don't know how much grief I've caused God. If only you could see. And it doesn't really matter though. Because God's grace is greater than every sin. If you will simply acknowledge your sin and trust in his finished work on the cross to pay for your sins, you can find grace instead of grief. No matter the grief that you've caused God, he's ready to extend his grace. No matter the size of your giant, his grace is bigger. What most people don't consider is God has already endured grief on our behalf. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and hopefully you've already got it marked. See, what most people don't consider, if they choose to stay in the lifestyle that they're living of wickedness and sin, they're causing the grief of God. They're they're causing grief in his heart, according to Genesis 6, as the way Moses described it. He's causing grief. But it's not the first time God has been felt grief on your behalf. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. It says, he is despised. This is talking about the man of sorrows, Jesus Christ, as a prophecy. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with what? Grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So get the picture here. He's despised and he's rejected of men. And he's acquainted. He has met grief on our behalf on the cross. And yet we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and yet we esteemed him not. We didn't even recognize that what he was going through. Verse 4, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken. Smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So before we think that God's being unfair for judgment, God already judged your sin when he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins. He was acquainted with grief on your behalf already. He took upon himself the payment for your iniquities and my iniquities. He took upon the sorrow in that moment for our, on our behalf for our sins. He's already been grieved for our sins. So listen, so to reject him today is to add double grief to God. He's already judged it. He's already been grieved for it. And for you to continue in sin is to multiply the grief that he's already felt for you. So on, for, on God's behalf, I'm asking that anybody in this room that has carried a giant of wickedness, a giant of sin, that you would come and humbly confess that sin before God this morning and refuse to contribute to the grief of God. Instead, you'll have his grace. See, those who embrace wickedness will produce grief in God. But those who humbly refuse it will find grace. You say, well, this is sure an old-fashioned message. Well, I prefer the word timeless. Thank you. But no matter how advanced or evolved evolved we get or think we are, our chief concern is and always will be how our sin affects our standing with God. So what giant is sin rules your life. 
It may be hidden and it may be public. It doesn't matter. God sees the heart and he sees this, this sin. Identify it. Confess it and let God's grace give you victory over it. Don't be too proud to get right this morning. Because you're not promised tomorrow. Your sin has a shelf life. God's judgment will see to it. So where there is wickedness, judgment is inevitable. But where there is humility, grace abounds. And you and I get to choose which one we experience. God's grief or God's grace. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please. And I'm just going to ask a couple of questions. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.